Well, I get the joy of uh, being with you guys this morning and sharing a little bit about our Prisoners of Hope series and talking about some, some new things that are uh, kind of stirring and wrestling through this, through this passage. And, and uh, my, so I'm going to start with this. My, my daughter uh, is two. Uh, she ha- experienced a new thing this week, um, and, it, and it was called dizziness. Because I had the joy to pick her up and to spin her around as fast as I could, time over time over time. And I did this, and she was loving it and giggling and giggling and giggling. And then all of a sudden, I stopped, and I put her down. And I put her down, and she's sitting on the couch going like this. Like, <laughs> what is happening in my world? As she, She's still spinning and bobbing and moving. And my son, um, I did the same thing to him, and he's like, Daddy, the whole house is spinning. And, and my, but my daughter, she, she was experiencing this, this new sensation. And, and you could see the more she was feeling the world spin around her and twist and turn, and the things that she thought were stable and settled became more and more unstable. And, and you could see in her face that she was becoming concerned that the world was not as she perceived the world to be. And I said to her, Eliana, are you dizzy? That's dizzy. And she goes, dizzy? Like dizzy, more daddy. And so for the last week, I've been getting myself sick all the time at my house, spinning my kids around and showing them. But... But in reality, my, my daughter experienced something that I think is very important for us today. When our worlds are in chaos, when, when there are things that are happening in our worlds that, that lead us to be confused about what God is doing, to, that, that lead us to, be, um, to, to misunderstand how God plays himself out in the world, to to rely on our own strength to define the spinning, chaotic world. We sometimes, we miss that, that voice of God that actually brings hope and security and strength in, and definition to all of the things that are going on. And I think in our lives, we tend to hope for things that are in the now. We tend to hope for things that change how we feel right in the moment. Uh, we, we hope that when the water company installs a new meter on your house, they install it backwards and you save hundreds of dollars. That happened to me. <laughs> they fixed it, though. I don't know why. I was, just, I was living it up. Um, we, we hope that, you know, maybe a person won't be dodging our calls or that work wouldn't be too stressful. Um, we hope that we can save enough money to maybe retire or buy a house or for college um, for our kids. Maybe we hope to have kids or grandkids. Maybe we're hoping that we pass a test. Um, maybe we're hoping that the people around us are, can, can uh, stay safe or that we could avoid pain. Uh, maybe that somebody could pass away peacefully. We have these hopes um, that, that are sometimes temporal. They're, they're based in this short-term perspective of the world. And what I want to invite you to today is toward a bigger hope. Towards a hope that isn't as fickle as 
whether you studied well for a test or not, that isn't as fickle as whether your boss is going to be kind to you today, but maybe is perhaps a little bit more about this long-term perspective of how we live life and how God fits into that picture. It's a bigger hope that invites us into the presence of God. It's, it's this, within this context of being a prisoner of hope. And as, as Chad's been sharing the last couple of weeks, the idea of being a prisoner of hope is being, being hopeful regardless. Being hopeful because of what Jesus has done. Being hopeful because of all the incredible things that God has for us. And our passage today, um, I think, is a very hopeful passage. It's a very hopeful passage, but it also is kind of a confusing passage. And so we're going to kind of break it down, and we're going to be bouncing around and moving all over the place and kind of discovering what hope looks like um, through things today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up, we are starting this morning in Hebrews chapter 6. That's Hebrews. Hebrews is at the very end of the Bible. Um, if you open up your Bible and you feel like you've flipped through a thousand pages, you're not there yet. You just keep going. And we get to this book called Hebrews. And Hebrews, big number six is the chapter, little number 17. Um, but Hebrews, uh, and, and where this, this passage places us, is in the middle of a super confusing piece of scripture. Okay? It if you read a little bit before, you're going to say, what is he talking about? If you read a little bit after, you're going to say, what is he talking about? Um, and in the middle of this passage is this passage that many of us are familiar with. This idea, it, it, it's in verse 19 that says, we have, an hope, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. And so we're going to discover together what this kind of looks like and what this kind of means. But a little bit of background information. Hebrews is actually not a letter. It's not a book. It was a sermon or a something like this that was given to a group of people. We call it Hebrews because it was given to people who were very familiar with Jude Jewish religious tradition. So we know that it's largely a sermon directed towards and in front of people who know and understand some of the depths and intricacies of the Hebrew Bible. And we know this because it expects that you know some things along the way. And one of the things that it expects we're going to be talking about today, but the first part of the book is kind of these, these allusions to things that God does, kind of, kind of some meaningful things. And we're going to step in this transition, this passage actually transitions from these, these simple allusions to some really depth-filled meat. So if you get nothing out, out of today and you're like, man, I'm new in my journey of faith, my, my encouragement to you is that you will get to see that there is more to this than meets the eye. And if you are like, man, I'm good in my faith and I want a big old chunk of meat to just chow down on and to fill me up and to, to like show me that there's some real depth and some real understanding, we're going to have that too today. So join me, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So basically, he wants to make it clear. He wants us to, to know that that's true, and so he confirms it with an oath. God did this so that, confusing part, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. 
Basically, God's promise is true. He locked it in place. And for those of us who are fleeing persecution, that's where it's talking about this idea, who, who are fleeing from this place of insecurity. We're in the early church and we're believing something that's not consistently in line with what the Jewish church or the, the Jewish temple and synagogue has been preaching for, for thousands of years. And so now we are in this place and this is written so you can be encouraged. Verse 19, it says, We have this hope. As an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, another reference to the Old Testament, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> right? So good. When Chad's like, this is the passage you should choose, I'm like, all right, let's do it. Um, he actually gave me the choice. I chose this one. I love, I love this passage. Not just because it's confusing, but because it's so deep and so rich. So I have three things for you guys to get this morning. Three things for you to understand, and it comes straight, straight out of the passage. But the first one is that God makes a promise. In this passage, we're not really sure what that is, but God makes a promise. Uh, the second is that the promise, the purpose of the promise, is to give us hope. So God makes a promise to give us hope, to, to give us something to live for in the midst of the chaos of the world around us, in the midst of the stormy sea, in the midst of this confusing balance of understanding what hope is. The promise is to give us hope. And then the third thing is that Jesus is the high priest who anchors this hope. God makes a promise, the promise is to give us hope, and Jesus is the high priest who makes it possible, who anchors this hope. And so, as we kind of move forward through these things this morning, I want you to keep in mind that the, 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 the central theme of this is Jesus is the high priest, who is the anchor for our souls. But it's important to know what promise God is actually making. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Hebrews 8. So you were in 6, you're going to probably turn a page or two pages to Hebrews 8. And we're starting in verse 10. And it says this. This is the covenant I will establish. This is the promise I will set up with the house of Israel. After, the time, after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This, this is the story of, of God's promise. God makes this promise that he will be our God, that we will be his people, that he will forgive us and remember our sins no more. This is the promise of, of the hope that God has given. Now, for some of us, that might not feel like an incredible hopeful thing, right? That to, to know that God's hope, that his, his promise for us is to know him. That doesn't feel like a thing that changes our world right now. But here's why it will. Let's go back to 
chapter 6, verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. God does not change. He is stable and steady. He wants to make it very clear to the heirs of what is promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled may take hope set before us and be greatly encouraged. The promise is meant to give us hope, that we would be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The promise is to give us hope. So if the promise is to give us hope, then how, how do we get there? If the promise is to give us hope, how do, we, how do we actually embrace this hope that God has for us? How do we, how do we actually dive into this, this understanding of what hope is? And so now I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to turn back uh, just slightly before this to verse 11 in chapter 6. And it says, it says, We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. In order to make your hope sure. So this is how you live out following this hope, following this promise. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So it is through faith and patience that we learn these things. Um, so how do, we, how do we get to faith? How do we, how do we understand the, the story of those before us, that, that inherited faith. We have to imitate those who through faith, faith and patience. So that says to me, we got to look back. We got to look back earlier. And, uh, and I'm part of these um, forums in, on Facebook, and basically they're places where pastors in all different areas and different settings with different job descriptions can get on and talk about stuff. And one of them is for youth pastors. And somebody posted this pretty meaningless thing. He said, how do you all feel about the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Now, I don't know if you've heard about the Ark Encounter, but they built a life-size Ark in the middle of Kentucky. Um, now, why is this incredible? Well, because it's massive, and it's made out of wood, and it's this giant thing, and they built this whole park around it. They even have a zoo next to it called the Air Rat Zoo so that the kids are excited. And um, I, I, as I started to see this and look at it, I started to get all those warm and fuzzies from my childhood, the story of Noah and all the animals, and it's so good. They're marching two by two next to each other until I realized that I really don't like the story of Noah. And, and maybe uh, the, the children's ministry teams have heard this, but the story of Noah is my pet peeve for kids. And the reason it's my pet peeve for kids is because there's nothing redeeming for kids. And you might say, oh, what? it's so great. There's a rainbow. We love rainbows. It's so great. There's animals. Kids love animals. And I'm like, yes, but the redeeming story, the, the redeeming value of this story, this might feel like a bunny trail, and it is. I get it. Um, the, the redeeming value of the story is that God will no longer destroy evil people. And I think for some of us, we kind of wish that wasn't true. Right? We kind of wish God didn't say, I'm going to make a promise not to destroy the bad people ever again. We kind of wish that God would actually say like, yeah, those people are bad. Let's just, you know, 
get rid of them like in the days of Noah. It'd be great. We'll have such a great life on earth, right? And, and so I look at the story and I'm like, ah, it's so great except for this. And, and yet we have all these other stories in the Bible that, that teach us things, that, that have great values, that, that remind us back to this idea of who are we imitating in faith. And we do see Noah faithfully following God for 800 years building this ark. Maybe that's the takeaway for kids. I'm not sure. Okay? But, but we have other stories like maybe Samson and David and Goliath, or, or maybe even more scandalous, David and Bathsheba, or the stories of Esther, or Ruth, or Joseph in the coat of many colors. Um, we like the stories where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and kills the prophets of Baal. We love these stories, right? Um, and we love the stories of the prophet Samuel and Daniel. And for many of you, when I say those names, they mean something to you. They, they remind you of something. For some of you, they might not. And I'd encourage you that they're incredible stories of God, God's faithfulness and love, and, and his incredible way in which he reaches and touches his people. But we also forget stories that really matter. Stories of less significant characters in the Bible who aren't given chapters and books. We forget the stories of Deborah, who was a judge over all of Israel and ruled the nation. We, we forget the stories of Prisca, who was uh, an early, a, a female elder in an early church. We forget the stories of, and significance of the story of someone like Melchizedek. Because it's not like this big of a story. It's this big of a story. So let me tell you about King Melchizedek. Because I think that's a story filled with hope. Melchizedek is a story filled with hope because Jesus is the high priest who anchors this hope. Jesus is the high priest who anchors this hope, and it's based and rooted on this idea of who Melchizedek is. So if we go back to our passage in Hebrews 6, looking at verses 19 and 20, it says, We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on behalf. He became a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, by show of hands, how many of you know who Melchizedek is? Okay, so, so this, this is not something that is clear in understanding for us. It's not something that, that is so part of our understanding of who God is. It's actually deeper and richer and more meaningful. And so, we're going to tell you about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, he is this person who shows up in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, which means father of nations. Abraham is the father of all the people of Israel. And Melchizedek shows up in the middle of this story. So if you want to turn with me, you can. Right back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And here's, here's what's happening right before this as you turn there. What's happening before this is the, all of these city-states around there have all these kings. And some of the kings have teamed up to fight against each other. And one of the, the, the teams of kings is the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And if you know anything about the story of Abraham, it's that his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And Sodom is ransacked and Lot is taken captive. And this is important to Abram because Abram is promised by God that he would be, that he would be the father of many nations. 
That's why he left his original town and his land and set off into Cana, into the land that he finds himself in. And they, they, they find themselves next to this place in Sodom. Well, his nephew, his one and only heir, is kidnapped. And so Abram takes his whole crew of men, of trained men, and goes after them and frees Lot. And he comes back. And he's greeted by the king of Sodom, who we know is, an, who we know is awful, right? Because Sodom's an awful place. So we already know this. And he, he greets him and he tries to, to give Abram some things. And Abram's like, no, I don't want anything from you. You're like, well, I'm your king, basically. And like, your nephew lives here and whatever else. No, I don't want anything. And it goes, and then, and then we hit verse 14. Or verse 18, I mean. Uh, then it hits verse 18. It says, then Melchizedek... King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This passage, three verses, is where the story of Melchizedek comes from. And it's important. It's important because the story of Melchizedek is the story of a priest who is not a Jewish priest, receiving the gift that is only given to the Levites, to the Jewish priest of 10%. It is, it is only given to the temple and yet Abraham, who is the father of the nation, who in some ways you would consider the father of Levi, the Levitical order, gives out of that to this priest who is bigger than the simple Levitical priesthood. And so when Jesus is compared to a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he's being called as part of a higher priestly Order. He's being called to an order that has no beginning and no end. Jesus is the high priest who anchors the hope. And we actually see other references of Melchizedek that make it clear that Melchizedek becomes part of the oral tradition of the people of Israel. That Melchizedek becomes a symbol of important hope for the people of Israel. And in Psalm 110, David in the middle of this psalm that we would call a prophetic psalm, he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're like, what? Okay, so we have this other thing that shows up now hundreds of years later after Abraham. And now we have this other thing. Now we're talking about Hebrews and he's talking about Melchizedek. Why is he talking about Melchizedek? So I'm going to invite you back to Hebrews with me. And in Hebrews chapter 5, we see this forewarning for about who Melchizedek is. In the same way, uh, five, verse 5, Hebrews 5, verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, and today I have become your father. And he says it in another place. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So when we go back to our passage today, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where the, our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So who is this? Who is this? 
Let's see. So if we continue to chapter 7. This is where, where it turns. We've now had inklings that there's something going on. But this is your deep theological study for the day. All right? If you didn't think it was deep already, it will get even better. Um, this it says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now, Salem was the original name of Jerusalem uh, before, before David comes in and calls it Jerusalem. But So we have this sense in which Melchizedek is an actual person, an actual king, an actual priest to the God Most High. We have this sense. But king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, which we already just saw. First, the name Melchizedek, his name, means king of righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Who is the king of peace? Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder. You see, Melchizedek is the representation of Jesus to Abraham. Of God present and incarnate as the king who brings what is right into the world. As the king who brings peace into the world. If that story of Abraham meeting God in the form of Jesus in the, in the name of Melchizedek in the Old Testament does not bring hope to Jesus being steady and faithful of being sure to his promise to make things right to bring peace does not bring hope then what brings hope? Melchizedek is seen by many Christian scholars to actually be Christ present. But even more so, even if, even if it's not actually Jesus incarnate in the Old Testament, he represents all of the things that Jesus as God represents in who he is as a priest. And this is why Jesus is part of the order of Melchizedek. Because just like Jesus, he doesn't have a beginning or an end. The history books say nothing of this king. Even earlier in the chapter, of all the kings that are battling and fighting, he is not part of those kings that are listed. He shows up for just this small piece. And so we have this sense and this idea that Jesus, that, that the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king that we know and love has been faithful. And in verse 15 of chapter 7, it continues. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation or to his ancestry. Jesus is not a Levite. He's not forced to be a priest. But based on the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared once again, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn... 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, of a better promise. Abraham was and is blessed by the God of the universe who is called the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And when Abraham returns from his dirty work, his unsightly work, to free his nephew from captivity, when his hope is fulfilled in his error, being rescued, he is met and encountered with an even greater hope, one that's not based on his temporal, his minimal, his nearsightedness. He's invited into this relationship with God. And right after this is when his name is changed to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. Right after this is when the promise that he would be the father of many nations, that he would actually have a son is made. That God's faithfulness is bigger than just what we have in front of us, just what we think we can control. It is greater than all of these things. So where do we go? What do we do? How do we embrace this hope? What does it actually mean in our lives? How do we, how do we take this hope and transition into what God has and desires and wants for us? And this is it. Hebrews chapter 4. So we're going to skip back. Like I said, we're making our way all through Hebrews because he's talking about the promise, the promise and the hope. So if we look back at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. He, he gives this understanding of the high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Or to say it in our language, it would be, we do have a high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So there's this idea of an anchor. And anchors are important. Um, but a spiritual anchor in the context of this passage of Jesus being our high priest who, who is our anchor, the anchor for our soul. The spiritual anchor is not like a ship's anchor. Um, because a ship's anchor is anchored downward. It keeps you planted. Your hope is that it will not move, that it will hold you firm in the storm. But but a, heaven, a spiritual anchor is anchored upward. It's anchored upward to heaven, not downward. Because we are anchored not to stand still, but to move ahead. Our anchor is sure. It cannot break. It is steadfast. It cannot slip. No earthly anchor can give that kind of security. 
It is an anchor that holds us fast, that, that holds us to the righteousness, to the peace, to the hope, to the future of Jesus. It is this anchor. One commentator said this about the, the chapters of Hebrews that we're talking about. He says that this idea is that he is trying to renew the congregation's hope and endurance. Through baptism, they belong to Jesus Christ. This is an incredible thing because it talks about all the things we do in the church. Through baptism, they belong to Jesus Christ. The forgiveness, peace, and harmony with God achieved through the priestly ministry of Jesus are great gifts to them. Because of this, this is what we get to do with it. Because of this, they can worship with joy and confidence. We can confess our faith with boldness, find meaning in the fellowship and relationships with people in the church, talking about Jesus. We can perform acts of mercy and kindness. And most of all, we can keep on hoping and serving with joyful confidence in the faith. In short, what seems at first glance like a long and complex journey through winding corridors of high priestly Christology, what Jesus as high priest means, turns out instead to provide cooling refreshment to weary Christians in everyday living of the Christian life. You see, the story of Melchizedek is an incredible story. Because, because the story of a priesthood that is built on God's righteousness invites Jesus to live out this foreshadowing through the Old Testament to become the high priest. The high priest is the one who offers the sacrifice, who offers the offerings both for their own cleanliness and for the people of Israel, who enters through the curtain into the Holy of Holies who meets God, just like it says, on our behalf. In verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf into the presence of God. And he has become a high priest forever, redeeming us, inviting us in to relationship with him in the same way that Melchizedek did. Without beginning and without end. With a hope forever. And we're tethered to this hope in heaven. The, the symbol of the anchor was actually a symbol that was littered throughout the churches in the early church. It, there's no less than 66 actual representations of anchors found in early church catacombs. The anchor, Jesus being the anchor to give us a future hope, is an incredible hope. So how, how do we live? How do we remember? How do we how do we change as a result of this hope? How do we live as a prisoner to this hope? How does this hope invade our lives in the midst of the swirling, spinning, twisting, dizzy world that surrounds us? 
When we trust on Jesus to define our lives, we trust on him to make sense out of the chaos. So as I'm spinning my daughter around, when I'm making her world spin and be chaotic, I'm holding her tight. I'm holding her close. I'm whispering in her ear that I will never let her go. And when I set her down, I define her reality. Because the reality is we get caught up in the world around us. We get caught up in a sense of needing to know and to understand the reasons why everything is happening. And the reason why is because God loves us and he loves us so much that he allows us to choose him or not to choose him. He gives us the opportunity to know him, to follow him, to seek him. And he invites us to, to a life filled and built with the purpose that he has created us for. That he has intended for us. And we can choose to live into that life or we can choose something else. And when people choose something else, death and destruction follows. And we seem to think sometimes that this means no pain or no hurt or no challenges will come our way. We seem to think that if I follow God, that everything good will continue to happen to me. But the reality is that everything good may not continue to happen to me. There are things that happen to us, falls and cancer and, and people in our lives who are dying and sick and broken. We we know that this is true, that this is part of the reality of life because the hope of God is not that this will be the very best. It's that forever we will have the peace and the redemption of Jesus. We will have something that guides us and leads us forward that will anchor us to a future hope, to a future promise, a future promise of who God is and how he has called us to be and to know who he is in and, in and around the world. And so we pray this in the prayer that God, that, that Jesus encourages us to pray, right? We say, your will be done as, on earth as it already is in heaven. His will is not being done here. But we pray and we earnestly seek for restoration. And so what do we do? We get to be the tools of that restoration. We get to be the tools of the hope. Not only do we live in the promise of God, but we get to be a part of the promise of God. We get to be the kind of people who seek hope and peace. We get to be the kind of people who perform acts of mercy and kindness. We get to be the kind of people who confess our faith with boldness and invite others into it. We get to be the kind of people who through the long and complex journey of the spinning world get to be the presence of God in the lives of others. We get to, we get to be with them, to be their present hope and to define and shape their world. So when our friends are bobbing in confusion, we can say, ah, that's dizzy. And that's not the world. That's not life. 
life is firm and secure in the king, the high priest, the king of righteousness who makes things right, the king of peace who brings ultimate peace, the king of hope in Jesus. Jesus is the hope. He is the anchor. He leads us up to heaven, to the stable and calm shores of his kingdom. So if you got nothing else out of today, I hope that if you look at Hebrews 6, chapter, sorry, chapter 6, verse 17 to 20, you will see and know that God has made a promise that his promise is to give us a hope and a future and that it is based on Jesus acting on our behalf as our high priest, which anchors us to his hope. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, would you, would you bleed this into us today? Would you fill us with your hope? God, in the world, it, it sometimes feels as though we can't even trust you or make sense of what is going on. But God, would you settle, would you do what you, this incredible word, would you just shove, would you sit, settle, and reside in us? God, would you make your presence clear in us? Would you fill our hearts with your hope? Would you allow us to be firm and secure in the hope that you give? Would you be sure to live and show us the promise that is an invitation into the rightness, to the healing, to the peace, to the reconciliation that you have for us and for the world? Would you give us the heart to be the kind of people who fight for your righteousness, who fight for your peace, who fight for your reconciliation? Would you give us your joy and your confidence so that we may know in the darkest and hardest and most challenging places of our lives that you are the God who loves us and who is the firm foundation for us, who defines our world and our reality. God, and guide us in our journey to seek you and to know you. I pray this in your name. Amen.